So welcome to your Channels of Medicine today. This is John Murphy. My pleasure to welcome to this podcast, Dr. Buddy Ratner. Dr. Ratner is a professor at the University of Washington. He holds his professorship in bioengineering and chemical engineering. He's also endowed chair in technology commercialization. Dr. Ratner, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you. So, Dr. Ratner, you're known around the world for your work in biomaterials and tissue engineering. Perhaps you just give us a brief overview of your interests. So let's call it my starting degree. I graduated both at a degree in polymer chemistry and my thesis advisor was a chair of chemical engineering department. So I had my feet from the beginning in both the engineering and the science, particularly the polymer science world. Did a PhD thesis on hydrogels. I remember when I started, there were maybe four or five papers in the entire scientific literature on this thing called hydrogels. So it was quite new. And the opportunity to do that research on hydrogels led to a postdoc position at the University of Washington in 1972, where I joined uh, Professor Alan Hoffman to work on biomaterials for an artificial heart. I have been working on materials for medical devices and for medical therapies ever since. So I guess I can really date my first research on biomaterials back to about 1967. That makes it a pretty long run. After the artificial heart, we went on to explore a lot of the ways that synthetic materials interact with the body, and particularly protein absorption, cell interactions. got very interested in the fundamentals of how materials could integrate into the body. And after studying that for a number of years, developing new types of biomaterials, publishing extensively on surfaces and surface modifications that change the way biomaterials interact, I came to a very strange conclusion, which surprised me, but eventually you have to kind of slap yourself in the face and say, this is what reality is. And that conclusion was all my clever synthesis, clever surface modifications, brilliant surface analysis, do all that stuff, and it made no difference to how the body saw synthetic materials upon implantation. The body looked at them, unimpressed with all our work, and just saw these materials as foreign, and walled them off. And that reaction, called the foreign body reaction, kind of surprised me that one could not modulate it by changing materials or altering chemistries. I was sort of at a crossroads in my own life and then heard a talk on porous materials uh, at an American Chemical Society meeting that just opened my eyes about possibilities. And we tried to find out more about porous materials. turned out that, yes, there was quite a bit of literature on the implantation in living systems of porous materials, The issue was that uh, the materials were very poorly characterized. They had a very broad distribution of pore sizes, typically were uncontrolled chemically. And although there was an interesting literature, there was really hard to make sense of what was going on. So we developed a class of materials that have one and only one pore size, uniform pore size. The pores are interconnected. And uh, once we had this, we could explore pore size as a very systematic variable. After implanting quite a number of these with different pore sizes, we came to a conclusion that I had never seen before in sort of the history of biomaterials, 
I'm talking now about roughly uh, 2000 or so when this was going on, we discovered that if the pore sizes were in a range of, let's say, uh, 30 to 50 microns, roughly half the diameter of a human hair, the pore sizes were in that range, were interconnected. We got a biointegration, a reconstruction of tissue, uh, vascularization, little or no fibrosis or, or the scar or this uh, capsule. If the pore sizes were smaller than this range or the pore sizes were larger, then we got the classic foreign body reaction with this foreign body capsule. And that observation led us to explore further. We concluded the macrophage cell must be a key player in making this happen. And it led us into a whole new biology, but also in working with a number of clinicians, we discovered if we put this material into skin, we had both the dermis and epidermis reconstructed. Uh, again, if the pore size was correct. If we put it into bone, we got bone. If we put it into sclera, we got sclera. And if we put it into the heart stroma, reconstructed very nicely through it. So that really was sort of my entrance, if you will, to regenerative medicine. It was a, a new approach. It's not the classic tissue engineering approach of seeding, but rather an approach to guide the macrophage down a pro-healing or pro-regenerative path. And that work continues in more recent years. I've gotten very interested in kidney dialysis. It's kind of interesting that that original work I did during my graduate work on hydrogels was looking at hydrogel membranes for urea transport for dialysis. But after that, I really didn't work in the dialysis area very much. And so we flash forward to 2017 with my colleague, Jonathan Himmelfarb, an MD nephrologist. We launched uh, what we're calling the Center for Dialysis Innovation. And this has kept me quite occupied and excited for the last few years in the potential of really rethinking the way we do kidney dialysis. And again, to put this in sort of the regenerative material space, we have a bunch of issues of the access grafts that we use to take the blood from the patient, put it into hemodialysis, of skin interfaces. And so we're quite actively working in using some of these uh, newer ideas developing interfaces with skin. So that'll kind of take you up to date. There's a lot of other activity going on in the Center for Dialysis Innovation, but I think a a very broad brush strokes covered my uh, 50 plus years of working in biomaterials. Very good. Thank you. I appreciate that. So let's take a step back, make sure everybody understands. What is a biomaterial? Biomaterial is a, uh, and this is a loose definition, and there is a the official definition, I can't quite cite it that way, but it is a material um, developed for or specifically intended for use within a living organism, let's say. So you have to deal with all the compatibility issues, is that correct? The term we commonly use is biocompatibility. Well, it's a bit of circular logic in that biomaterial should be biocompatible, and one defines a biocompatible material as a biomaterial. So the two terms are somewhat intertwined, but these things called biomaterials in the most simple terms will pass as some ISO standardized tests that the FDA and other regulatory agencies require called the ISO 10993 tests. And if a synthetic material passes that, it has potential to be used as a biomaterial. 
you know, if we take polyurethanes, for example, that are used as automobile seat covers and compare it with the polyurethanes that are used in catheters and artificial hearts, the automobile seat cover polyurethane will not pass the ISO 10993 tests, while the catheter material or the polyurethane used in, for example, an artificial heart bladder will pass that test. So that's kind of how we loosely define biocompatibility. But then I think I mentioned to you, I have this issue where all biocompatible biomaterials, basically the body looks at them and yes, they pass the ISO tests. Yes, they'll satisfy the FDA. Yes, they're widely used in medical devices, but the body still looks at them and walls them off as foreign materials. So we've learned to make use of biomaterials that indeed are walled off with what we call the foreign body reaction. That's viewed as the normal reaction, actually, to implanted materials. But we're saying, yes, we do it in millions of implanted medical devices, but there are substantial complications, medical complications associated with this capsule, and we can do better. And that sort of led us to this next level of thinking about how we can use the similar materials but get them to integrate or be, if you will, pro-regenerative to the tissues they're implanted into. Very interesting. So you mentioned millions of devices. I presume that the materials you and your colleagues have developed have been used in many of those devices. So it would be safe to say that your technology has contributed to helping over a million patients? I don't. No, it's that many patients. Uh, again, parts of our technology have gone into other systems, but developments from my lab are, for example, uh, now used in ophthalmologic surgery and cardiovascular surgery. So, Dr. Ratner, your lab has a variety of interests. If I look at your website, there's uh, drug delivery devices, healing and soft tissue, and so forth. So, what would you say is the predominant application of your technology? other than the surgical tools you just mentioned? Again, I think I have worked in my career just about every aspect of medicine, including uh, ophthalmologic, and one of the ophthalmologic devices has gone into humans, a coated intraocular lens. Again, a lot in cardiovascular in the, the area we call blood compatibility. Worked a bit in, in orthopedics and bone regeneration and skin healing is another area we've done some work in. You know, I think, as I said, at the moment, looking at projects in my own lab, I mentioned the kidney dialysis project, and we can talk more about that later. It's, again, the largest project. But, for example, we're working on uh, now on insulin delivery catheters, and these catheters are used with insulin pumps free the patient from multiple injections a day of insulin, but do require the implantation of this catheter through the skin maybe every three days. Uh, catheters fail typically in two to three days, so they have to put in a new catheter to continue the infusion of insulin from their pump. And these sticks, if you will, through the skin every two or three days, these penetrations are painful, uh, lead to a type of scarring, also are expensive for the patient having to replace these so frequently. So uh, we're trying to use some of the technology we've developed. We've learned that the reason why these insulin delivery catheters fail is, again, what looks like a massive inflammatory reaction, almost like an early foreign body reaction. 
so we're using some of our technology that, again, can address this kind of body reaction, and we're aiming to get an insulin delivery catheter that might work for two weeks rather than two days. So that would be a great development. Uh, another area we're working in, in collaboration with a group in Oregon State, and the PI of that project is Ravi Balasubramani at Oregon State, but we're working on improving the biocompatibility of a tendon implant. And I think the innovation from Oregon State comes out of a mechanical engineering department, and they have a very clever mechanical device for a tendon replacement, but how it will integrate, how it will perform in the body, the body that wants to put, as I said, sort of scar or this foreign body capsule around it, we're trying to minimize that so the device will function better in the body. Those are just some examples of things going on and the sorts of devices that I'm uh, working on. And I do say at this point in my career, I really think a lot about working on actual devices and making a very direct impact in medicine. I congratulate you for that. I think it's important to get technology in the hands of the physician to help patients. So you mentioned inflammatory response. I had the impression that inflammatory response is actually necessary for remodeling. Is that correct? You know, a medical textbook would define inflammation as the normal process of healing in vascularized tissue. And so it's accepted as normal. It's critical to trigger this inflammatory process to get any healing at all. So we can turn it off with certain steroids, dexamethasone and such. But then healing is also turned off. If we want healing, we need inflammation. But inflammation, we might say, has sort of two phases. There's an early phase, which is sort of an attack phase, where the body rather aggressively addresses an injury, and it does that to get rid of dead or necrotic tissue that occurred when the injury happened, to get rid of bacteria and other pathogens that might invade that wound site. So first we have that sort of aggressive or attack phase, but then the second phase, the cells involved, and again, particularly this macrophage cell seems quite involved, seems to switch over and say, uh, okay, the wound site is cleaned up, the bugs are gone, let's heal and regenerate this site, and then goes into a different mode, which is more reconstructive. And so again, we see as part of our strategy is to utilize, to take advantage of that reconstructive mode. And it might just take one step back. I talked about injury, but of course any surgical site is indeed an injury. So these inflammatory processes, every bit as relevant for an injury out in the real world or a surgical procedure in a uh, operating room. I should have mentioned at the outset, this podcast series is actually done in collaboration with the Journal of Immunology and Regenerative Medicine. And you've kindly lend your expertise to that particular journal with being on the advisory board. So perhaps you could comment on the journal, what role it plays in this whole arena. We've seen the appreciation of the importance of inflammation and, if you will, more generally immunology or immunological reaction to healing, to biomaterials, to tissue engineering. This has grown from almost zero appreciation to the point where I think everybody would freely admit that uh, understanding immunology is critical to understanding regenerative medicine. 
understanding of regeneration, if you will, or healing, or biointegration. So this journal arrives at a time when uh, I think it's really appropriate to bring these two concepts together, immunology and regeneration or healing or biocompatibility, if you will. So uh, a journal with that focus, I think, serves a unique role. I gather that while the journal is relatively new, it's been very well received by the peer community. Yeah, I should hope it would be, yes. So, Dr. Ratner, you mentioned you work on kidney dialysis. Perhaps you could spend a few more minutes tell us a little bit more about that, what the status of that technology development is. Yeah, again, there's kind of a historical antecedent here in that kidney dialysis, as we know it today, chronic dialysis, a patient who goes in a few times a week for dialysis to clean their blood because they have end-stage kidney failure, their kidneys no longer function. That whole technology was developed right at my institution, the University of Washington. In 1960, the very first human was placed upon chronic dialysis and kept alive. Before that moment, if a patient's kidneys failed, there was nothing in medicine that could be done to save or prolong that patient's life. From that moment in 1960 on, and again, this innovation was done by an MD nephrologist named Belding Scribner, a bioengineer named Wayne Quinton, and a chemical engineer named Bless Bab. And these three individuals developed the first chronic dialysis systems, visualized the need, developed the system, and then for the first time in human history, when somebody's kidneys failed, there was an option to keep them alive and sustain them. That was developed before the era of, of transplants, well before. It was the only technology available to keep people alive. But that teamwork, that combination of a nephrologist, a bioengineer, chemical engineer, is quite reminiscent of our new center here in Seattle, where, again, I consider myself a bioengineer and a chemical engineer, and I'm working with an MD nephrologist to uh, advance the kidney technology. We're literally in the shadow or a thousand feet away from where that first human was dialyzed. So that was 1960, that first dialysis. By 1962, the world's first dialysis center opened in Seattle. And that was also quite interesting because they had just a few dialysis machines. And there were thousands of people with kidney failure. So who gets access to this scarce technology? Should it be maybe a brilliant clergyman or a genius scientist or a mother with four kids? Really, many people say... The need to make that very complicated medical decision almost led to the birth of a field called bioethics in deciding how to allocate such a scarce technology. In any event, the dialysis center was clearly successful. People were kept alive. And again, jump into the present day, every city has one or more dialysis centers to address exactly this issue. But if we look more closely at what goes on with there's a couple of interesting statistics here. When a patient starts dialysis, the average lifespan for a patient on dialysis is three to four years. It's very, very hard on the patients. A lot of complications and very difficult on their life having to come in and connect themselves to this machine, which often required a major blood vessel puncture or stick to connect them up. For many, 
patients do not thrive typically on that dialysis system. Yes, they're alive. They'd be dead in three weeks if they didn't have this, but they may only last three or four years. It was average value. Another interesting thing is this procedure is very expensive. It costs the U.S. government 1% of the entire federal budget. That's not the health care budget. 1% of the entire U.S. budget goes to keeping these dialysis patients alive. So it's expensive. It's complication-ridden, doesn't work that well. It compromises the quality of life of patients on dialysis. Then finally, what I find almost most shocking is around the world, about 7 million people a year die from end-stage kidney failure, and only about 2 million worldwide get dialysis. Mostly it is too complicated, too expensive to bring into developing country environments, low-resource environments. Maybe 5 to 7 million people worldwide die because they just don't have this life-saving technology available to them. So with that background, again with my colleague Dr. Himmelfarb, we began examining the issues that were the complications or the problems with existing dialysis systems. We came to the conclusion that since that development was done in Seattle in 1962, there was actually remarkable little development. I think the people that developed this in 1962 could look at what we're doing today and understand exactly what's going on because it really hasn't changed in all those years. So we have envisioned the possibility of developing a wearable 24-7 kidney dialysis system. And this type of system would, again, filter your blood 24-7 instead of three times a week. So it emulates more closely what the normal kidneys do. The patient would not be confined to a a hospital room or a clinic for many hours, three times a week. It should be ultimately much lower cost to bring the patient out of the clinical setting and put them back into the natural lives. So we are bringing together biomaterial scientists, myself and others at the university, mechanical engineers, chemical engineers, material science engineers to totally rethink every aspect of this kidney dialysis. And we hope in five years to have a wearable kidney, we call it an ambulatory kidney, in human clinical trials. This rather large press-sized effort is generously funded by the Northwest Kidney Centers, which really was the world's first kidney center, and they're a nonprofit dialysis provider. So from their standpoint, Advances in dialysis to reduce costs and improve patient outcomes are desirable, and they were willing to invest in us to see if we can do this transformative technology. So that's kind of a broad brush overview of what we're doing with the Center for Dialysis Innovation. That's impressive. I wish you well. It's clearly an example of taking technology and moving it into clinical practice. So, again, best wishes to you and your colleagues in this pursuit. So, Dr. Ratner, thank you for sharing with our listeners your exciting and pioneering technologies. The accomplishments to date are quite commendable, and the pursuit of the new initiatives is exciting as well. I extend to our listeners the opportunity to share comments and suggestions for podcasts 
You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I'd like to thank the Journal for Immunology and Regenerative Medicine for participating in this podcast series, as well as the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Until we meet again, thank you for listening.